Hi and welcome to The Kind Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. You guys are stuck with me again this week and also just a quick note to say we won't be doing an episode next week. Oh, tell us why. <laughs> oh, we just don't want to. Yeah, we just give no, no. up. <laughs> it's over. No, no, just kidding. Um, we have decided just to take a one week holiday you know the sun is shining and also life and everything is just really busy at the minute but we will be back on the 2nd of July with a wee American special for you all so stay tuned (laughs) that was beautiful thank you thank you anyways this week's podcast is it's actually quite a harrowing case <laughs> sorry I know this has been all laughter and stuff but it is a harrowing case of a seven year old called Nikki Allen you the usual Caitlin I would just like to say that this episode is based on a child so listeners discretion is advised and you can skip this one if it's really not your thing. So Caitlin have you heard of the story of Nikki Allen before? I have yes I don't know all the full ins and outs of it but I am aware of who they are. <laughs> yeah no that's good um I was also aware so you know both of us are quite shocked right now um but anyway I will begin. Nikki Allen was born on the 30th of August 1985. She was one of four daughters born to her mother Sharon and her father David. Nikki's parents, they did separate when all the girls were young and so Nikki lived with her three sisters and her mum in a block of flats called Weir Garth in the east end of Sunderland. And also the dad David, he was still a part of his daughter's lives even though he didn't live there. Sharon's parents also lived in the same block of flats and so they were close. The area was a bit run down and the families that lived in this area, they were not well off. However, like we said before on a lot of our podcasts, Caitlin, is that these are the types of places where there's a proper sense of community and the communities really come together and help each other out, especially when things turn sour. Oh yeah, I think if you definitely look back to our Shannon Matthews episode, if that was somewhere else, like if that was in an area where the neighbours keep to themselves, they would not have had the amount of search teams and I know that that obviously that case wasn't as it was made out to be, but like the way the community all gathered together, whereas if you live in a neighbourhood where you just kind of keep your head down and don't speak to each other, that's not going to happen, but it does seem to be the kind of more poverty areas that do this. Yeah, absolutely, they stick with each other. Um, Nikki, she was a happily bubbly wee girl and she loved to play with her sisters and also her cousins as they lived close by, as well as playing with friends. She had a great outlook on life and she was very cheery. And it's also said on a couple of things that she absolutely loved cheese and onion crisps. So obviously she has very good taste, if I may say so myself. Now, on the night of the 7th of August, 1992, There was nothing unusual going on. Sharon and the kids, they went to visit their grandparents just up the stair. And after a few hours, Nikki left her grandparents home before her mum and sisters. There isn't a specific time, as Sharon says, roughly 8.30, but some witnesses have said closer to 10pm. So I'm not entirely sure what the actual time was. But after just 10 minutes of Nikki leaving, Sharon and the rest left her parents' house to go back home, but found no sign of Nikki. Sharon began to panic where 
where could she be? There was only one floor above them. You know, you literally went along the corridor and up the stairs and that's where her grandparents lived. So they didn't leave that long ago. You know, what is happening? Within the hour, Nikki had been reported missing and the police had arrived. Like I said earlier, this is a close-knit community. So the news had travelled fast and around 100 people were out looking, knocking on doors, searching the parks and the riverbank, trying to find Nikki. At this point, no one was sure if she had just wandered off or if something worse had happened. Volunteers were hopeful that this was going to be an innocent, happy ending, but sadly, this was not to be the case. The following morning, there'd still been no sign of Nikki, and so the police had a conference and announced a public appeal to find her. Just minutes before the press conference was to begin, a police officer entered the room and spoke to Superintendent Alex Price, who was a senior officer on the case. The news was the worst outcome that it could have ever been. On the morning of Thursday, the 8th of October 1992, Nikki Allen's dead body was found by a group of searchers, one of whom was Nikki's auntie, spotted um, a children's coat and a pair of shoes that had been placed carefully and neatly outside the derelict abandoned Keyside Exchange building. Inside this building in the basement, Nikki was found lying in a pool of blood. The autopsy revealed the horrific results that Nikki had been beaten with a brick and stabbed 37 times by a knife in the chest and abdomen. The local community, they were obviously in shock and engulfed with anger as the news broke out. Who could have done such a thing? The police had to act fast and get answers. I think like when you just said there were 37 stab wounds, like on an adult, that's horrific. And I know we've already gonna, did a trigger warning because we're talking about a child, but 37 stab wounds on a child? Mm-hmm. Like their body would be so small. Yep. And it's just the chest and abdomen area as well. So it's not that's like... crazy. Yeah. Now, the local community, they were obviously raging. And so their initial inquiries, they led to a few witnesses coming forward to say that they had seen Nikki as late as 10.30pm, apparently begging for money outside the local pub. So some folks just said that, you know, the money, it was probably for the sweet shop down the road or others said it may have just been because it was Halloween it was coming up. Detectives wanted to trace everyone who visited that pub on the Wednesday that Nikki was last seen. On the Thursday, a man had called the incident team to inform them that a 14-year-old girl had said to him that she had seen a man in bloodstained clothing who was saying that he had just killed someone. However, the call was anonymous and so the police appealed for the man and or the 14-year-old girl to come forward, but I don't believe that they ever did. Detective Superintendent George Sinclair, who was leading the murder inquiry, said that the murder may be a local man and possibly will have known Nicky or Nicky will have known him. Now, the police thought that the killer was familiar with the local area, the high street and the warehouse where Nicky's body was found. The police. I feel like whenever it's a child that dies, it has to be someone that knows them because it's such a risk. Like, you don't know where they're going or what they're doing. So I feel like, you know, when you look at cases like Tia Sharp, etc. It's always somebody that's weirdly connected. Yeah, the kid has to be able to go with this adult trustingly and not being, you know, like kidnapped or make a scene, should you say. Is that like kind of what you mean? Now, what happened? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't find the mute button. Sorry, yes. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like, I think especially younger children, like they're not just going to go with a random adult at half ten at night when it's dark. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And the place that they went, it was a dangerous, unlit area, which unless you know your whereabouts when you're in there, it's a really dangerous place to be. So it's not just something that you would go to on the off chance. Now, police suspected that the killer would have led her away from the local pub and down the high street east on Lower Road. George and Claire said, provided we get the assistance of the public, I have no doubt we will conclude the inquiry. The incident room had received more than 100 calls within the first 24 hours of the inquiry. It was revealed from her autopsy that there was no signs of sexual assault. However, they did not rule out that the attack could have been sexually motivated. George Sinclair said it may have started out as a sexual motive, but may have stopped resulting in the girl being killed. Nikki's uncle Terry Clark said the whole family is just devastated by this tragedy. I don't imagine we will ever come to terms with it. Nikki was a great little girl loved by everybody and her life just didn't deserve to end this way. He firmly believed that Nikki had been snatched as she had been warned not to go away with strangers. He said she wasn't the sort of girl who would go off with strangers. She knew the dangers. And it said that, you know, Nikki was a shy little girl. You know, it's not like she was someone that would just go like you, Caitlin, who would just go talking to anyone and have the confidence. You know, she wasn't like that. The police, thank you for making me sound like I deserve to be given <laughs> No, 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 you don't. But I mean, you had the confidence. Like we met because I got back from the ice cream man and you were talking to my mum. You know, we were <laughs> seven. We were yeah. seven. We weren't like seventeen, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, a good thing. yeah. I was, it was maybe eyeing up what ice cream you had. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I was interested in. <laughs> now, the police released CCTV images of a man in a light-coloured shirt walking to the exchange building with a little girl. The images were not clear, but who else could it have been? It was nine p.m. on October night. Surely it had to be them both. Now, a week later, there was a reconstruction with a wee girl dressed in similar clothing to Nikki's on the night of her disappearance from the, the Boar's Head local pub to the exchange building. She was with a man dressed the same as the person in the CCTV. The detectives continued with their inquiry whilst information kept coming in from local people. A witness said that he had hired a child's scream from the general dialect direction of the exchange building and throughout their inquiries there was one constant. A lot of people kept mentioning the same man as their suspect. Local man George Heron who was 24 at the time. He lived on the same estate as Nicky and he hadn't been living there for long but he was known to frequent the building where Nicky's body had been found. So George was brought into questioning. On the night of Nikki's disappearance, witnesses have said that George was at the local pub that night he had, and he had had Nikki's favourite crisps, cheese and onion flavoured. His sister also stated that when he'd gotten home that evening, he was acting in a suspicious manner. You, unusually for him, he had went straight to the bathroom and spent a good half hour in there washing himself and his clothes that he had been wearing. The police then searched George's home and they had found trainers and clothing with blood on them, along with a knife that they believed had been used as the one to kill Nicky. If it wasn't the murder weapon, it was definitely capable, capable of producing identical wounds. George denied knowing Nicky 120 times before he then later admitted that he did know her and had in fact spoken to her. The police confronted him with the fact that people had saw him at the pub that night. However, he was still in denial and said he was never there. 
After three days of full-on questioning, George Herring cracked and he confessed to the murder of seven-year-old Nikki Allen. The police then charged him with the murder and, as you would expect, the local community and those around were absolutely fuming. When he was taken in for his sentencing before the case goes to trial at the Crown Court, there were people in the spectator's base shouting abuse at him. One man tried to jump forward and attack him, but got restrained by the police. And outside, people were banging and shouting at the van that was taking him away. The trial took place at Leeds Crown Court in October 1993. The judge told the jury that what the timeline of events and what they believed had happened that night between Nicky and George. However, there were difficulties with the prosecution's case. Yes, the police had done mostly a good job. However, it did fall short. According to the judge, Justice Mitchell, who listened to the police tapes and read their transcripts and interviews with George, he viewed seven of the 12 interview tapes as inadmissible, including the most important tape of all, the one where he had confessed to the murder. The no. judge, yes. So how was now, it inadmissible? Were well, you going to so, tell me? Sorry. I am going to tell you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. The judge said that the detectives had misrepresented their evidence to George and that they had used oppressive method methods to extract his confession. More evidence of poor police work also arose. Now, the first six hours of George's interview was attended by a legal secretary and not a qualified solicitor. So the police failed in their duty to instruct anyone under caution that they are entitled to have a qualified solicitor with them. And despite George continuously stating his innocence, the police continued to interview him as if he was the murderer. After three days of extensive interviews, George Herring was clearly exhausted and broken down. And that is why he confessed. Because of all this, the judge did not accept this as a valid confession. The judge also wasn't happy with the evidence provided in regards to the blood splatters and knife found at George's home, as it was circumstantial, cir sorry, circumstantial evidence at best. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of this before. It might be this case I'm thinking of, but I've heard of things, and there's loads in America as well, where the police fuck up, basically, is the best way to put it, with something so stupid as, like, just giving him his rights like they yeah. just get so carried away with the fact they think they've caught somebody that they just forget like basic policing and then they end up doing this yeah no you're completely right and because of this the witness statements were the most important to now consider however there were also issues with these as key witnesses who placed George at the pub or the ones that claimed Nikki was there were not they were not the best um, with regards to the witness statements. They gave different descriptions of what they said. And most importantly, not one of them could identify George Heron in an identity line and gave evidence of police pressure to get a result. Darren Baker was one of the witnesses who was the boyfriend of George's sister. Darren told the court that George had been out for an hour at the time Nikki was murdered. However, under cross-examination, this turned out to be a lie. He said that George had actually watched TV with the rest of the family on the night of Nikki's murder. But Darren, he had been arrested in the assistance of defending an offender and was kept in police cells for almost five whole days. 
And so he crumbled. And in the end, he said, I told them what they wanted to know. I was sick of being locked up. After six weeks, the judge had had enough and he ordered the jury to acquit George Heron of the murder of seven-year-old Nicky Allen. Mayhem obviously broke out in the court with friends and relatives shouting. Nicky's mum even collapsed and members of the jury were even in tears. One person in the public gallery even shouted at George saying, you're dead, we'll kill you. And another shouted, you killed that bairn. So people were not happy. George I Heron, think though they oh sorry me again no no I think they should be angry at the police though because as you said we've not got any exact confirmation it was him apart from all the corrupt stuff no exactly you're right but I think as public we do get carried away in a story like we're like oh it was them and then we're just like you know yeah definitely on that and I think that's possibly what happened here now George though he was officially a free man how free is really the question because his life has obviously been turned upside down and roundabout in every way and he obviously could not return to live in Sunderland and he was still a hated man so as you'd have gathered the public do not believe that the judge was right and that George is in fact still the killer. George Herring was given a new identity and he moved out of the area. Soon after the trial, George's solicitor's office was firebombed and even when George was in prison on remand, he had actually been slashed across the face and scarred. Nicky's mum was secretly invited into the prison to personally thank the inmate who had done it and Sharon had also been sent letters from some of the jurors saying that they will be haunted about Nicky's murder for the rest of their lives. We're now back to square one. The Northumbria police were not happy with the outcome and the judge, just as much as the judge wasn't very impressed with them either. Detective Chief Superintendent Barry Stewart, head of Northumbria CID, said he had no criticism of the officers involved in the case. He agreed that the forensic evidence was not of the best quality and he said, These interviews were conducted properly by police in accordance with the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. The allegation the judge had made of oppression was a matter of interpretation, adding in a difficult case like this, there is no use pussyfooting around. The murder of a wee girl absolutely destroyed Sharon's life. The media had portrayed Sharon as a not a good person. Articles and news falsely spread misinformation saying that Sharon neglected her children and that she was way more interested in partying than childcare. Now this was just not true and unfortunately this is the sort of thing with the media it's not really changed and well at least I don't believe it's changed you know misinformation is I'm going to say about. what I said earlier sorry I'm going to say what I said earlier though it depends on the community you're in because if you're in a lower class working class council community you're a bad parent whereas if that was somebody else from a higher paid family you're not yeah no I completely agree with you and that's exactly what's been happening here in the years that followed, Sharon's only goals were to look after her other children and to get justice for Nikki, which she had tirelessly pushed for over the last 30 years. In an interview with the Guardian newspaper in 2006, it reads, The police have always said that they are not looking for anyone else in relation to the murder, but the reform of the double jeopardy rule, which stated that a person could not be tried twice for the same offence once acquitted, came into force last year under the 
Criminal Justice Act 2003. Under the Act, the Court of Appeal now has the power to quash an acquittal and order a retrial where there is new and compelling evidence. Now, who was it that managed to bring that Double Jeopardy Act in? Our first ever episode, I believe. Three years old. Yeah. Now, Sharon had campaigned to change the Double Jeopardy rule, and she knew that if the blood found on Heron's shoes and clothes 14 years ago were to be re-examined, it might be possible to confirm whether or not the blood was Nicky's. In the light of the change in the law and scientific advances, Sharon waited for the police to come and tell her they would reopen the case. Because of the change in the law, they suddenly had a chance to reinvestigate. I heard nothing from them, she said. By 2002, prompted by advances in DNA testing, Sharon was sending at least one letter a month to the police, the Home Office and even the Queen. Another part of the Guardian interview that was kind of heartbreaking and put into perspective on what Sharon was going through was that stopped that was that she stopped walking the route Nikki took from her um, grandfather's house to where she died only recently. Now, this article was in 2006, remember. She said, when people saw me walking that route, they would all stop and bow their heads, even the men working the boats. If whoever killed Nikki is finally convicted, Sharon believes she could start to grieve properly for her dead daughter. And she said, but there will be no peace for me. Because the day some bastard smashed a brick over my innocent child's head was the day I went to hell. Now, that was 2006. Jump all the way to 2013, where Sharon secured an appearance on Crime Watch, which she had arranged by herself with the producers. Now, this appearance put the case firmly back in the public's mind. Just saying, right, and I say every episode, just saying, and I say every episode we do, I loved Crime Watch. It was so important, and it should come back. Justice for Crime Watch. Yeah, totally agree. Now, in 2013, hope had also arisen again when a 47-year-old man was arrested for the connection of the murder. It was later revealed by the police that the man was Stephen Greveson, also known as the Sunderland Strangler, who was serving three life sentences for the murder of three teenage boys between 1993 oh. and 1994. Did you not just do this recently? I don't think I have done this episode, but it's definitely on my <laughs> list. Right, sorry. <laughs> I just heard Strangler and thought, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, I've done like two or three, but I mean, he is on my list, don't get me wrong, and he will be in the future. Now, Everybody felt that there could finally be justice for Nikki, so much so that Sharon had collapsed upon receiving this news, which later revealed that she had in fact suffered from a small stroke. Sharon actually wrote to Stephen, asking him to cooperate with the inquiry. However, detectives later said that his bail was cancelled and was no longer of interest to them with regards to Nikki's case. In 2016, Sharon called for a full reinvestigation of the crime. She launched an online petition urging Northumbria police to carry out a top-to-bottom review of the case, which attracted more than 500 signatures in less than 24 hours. The following spring, she had a meeting with Northumbria police, then Chief Constable Stephen Ashman, to speak about what we're going to do next for the case. On the 25th anniversary of the murder in 2017, Sharon appeared on Crime Watch again, 
Police announced that they had uncovered further forensic results, including some male DNA, which they believe could help with the investigation. They appealed for male members of Nikki's family, friends and others who may have come into contact with her to come forward for a DNA sample in order for them to be eliminated. Nikki's dad was the first male to come forward to show his support for the police investigation and this was the first time he was speaking out about it in 25 years. David Allen urged any other man to come forward who could have been in contact with his daughter. Jump to April 2018, where a local man, David Boyd, was then arrested for Nikki's murder. Sharon, who was now 51 at the time, said, They came to tell us there was an arrest. My legs just went. I was like a baby. I was saying, please tell me this is real. I've had my hopes up and down so many times. David Boyd was then released under investigation after questioning with inquiries ongoing. Jump to February 2019, where Sharon found herself in Sunderland Magistrates Court and she was actually issued with a restraining order and she was charged with an offence under the Communications Act. Sharon agreed to a restraining order whereby she was barred from making any online comments or mentions of the Guidepost pub landlord Keith and his wife Julie and customer Caroline or communicating with them directly or indirectly. Now, because of all this and Sharon was fighting and fighting for the justice of her little girl, she was starting to go to places where she thought they know information here. Speaking with them, being their friend and then kind of, you know, trying to get information out of them. Now, Michael Rose was the prosecutor, told the court that Sharon had believed, rightly or wrongly, that the occupants of the pub knew something about Nikki's murder. She had put comments on her Facebook page calling people scum and rats. Sharon's solicitor, Jason Smith, said that Sharon believed that information had been withheld at the time of the original investigation of Nikki's murder. This was always Sharon's belief that someone knew at the time what had happened. And they may not have been able to come forward at the time because they may have been implicating themselves in some criminal wrongdoing, as it was well known that the derelict building was used by drug users, local youths, you know, just somewhere to hang out and cause trouble. Now, in May 2022, David Thomas Boyd, 54, from Norton near Stockton, appeared at Newcastle Crown Court. He spoke to confirm his name and date of birth and he was remanded in custody until his next appearance, which was to be the 20th of June. In June 2022, David Boyd pleaded not guilty of the charge against him when he appeared in Newcastle Crown Court via video link, because obviously COVID times. He was remanded in custody and a trial date was set for January or April. Sharon burst into tears when the charge was read out and was consoled by supporters in the public gallery. Judge Paul Sloan QC adjourned the case and said the trial could last up to six weeks. The trial date was set for the 19th of April 2023. At the trial, Prosecutor Mr Wright's opening statement said that Nikki was not abducted but rather lured as one witness reported seeing her skipping to catch up with a man. She was unwittingly skipping towards her death, Mr Wright said. Nikki was led to Wasteland next to the river, next to the river Weir, sorry, where she was struck on the head, causing her to bleed. The man then forced her through an opening in a boarded up window in the old exchange building where he beat her about the head with a brick, shattering her skull. After that, she was repeatedly stabbed through her chest, heart and lungs. 
Witnesses heard screams about 10 o'clock, which fixed the time of the killing, he said. Nikki's body was dumped in a basement room and discovered the next day by two volunteers who had joined the search for her. Jurors were told that the killer was David Boyd, who was 25 at the time and also known as David Smith or David Bell. The case against the defendant was circumstantial, circum, I seem to not be able to say that word today, circumstantial but compelling as his DNA had since been found on Nikki's clothing. Mr Boyd lived at Weirgarth on the same floor as Nikki's grandparents and was well known to the family, the court was told, because his girlfriend was Nikki's babysitter. He knew the layout of the old exchange and he had told police he used the same window a few days before when he took a boy there to search for pigeons. David Wright said the accused was of the same age and bore a striking resemblance to the man seen with Nicky. The jury heard he was the last man to tell police he saw Nicky alive at about 9.35 and created himself a false alibi for his whereabouts at 10 o'clock. Now, bearing in mind at the time he made this lie, only the killer would have known at what time he had killed Nicky and would have appreciated that 10 o'clock was an important time. He said the prosecution did not have to prove a motive, adding, only the killer knows precisely why he did what he did to Nicky. On the night she was killed, Nicky was seen playing with other children by the flats and also at about 9.43 outside the Boar's Head pub. It was not unusual for children to be playing unsupervised outside when it was dark in this time. Now, modern DNA profiling techniques, they were hugely advanced from 1992, because you know, now we're in 2023, when the science was just in its infancy back then. Now, profile matching Mr Boyd was found in four places on Nikki's clothing, including the hip of her shorts and under the arm of her T-shirt. The, 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 sorry. the defendant was not Sunderland born and bred, and he had no family in the area, the jury heard. Now, of the hundreds of other men tested, no other profile matched the DNA on the clothes. Now, with this DNA, it could either match with David Boyd or possibly could have also been his brother. However, his brother was only ever in the Sunderland area for a funeral when he was 14 years old, years before this. So clearly, it was David. Now, various factors pointed to him, and the prosecution, they said that including that he knew the girl and the murder site well, it was a dead ringer for an artist's impression of the man seen with Nicky. No other credible candidate for the murder who fits the wider criteria has been identified. Jurors were shown video footage of his arrest at his home in which Mr Boyce said he had no involvement in the killing, but then he asked, what evidence have you got anyway? Now, the prosecutor asked the jury to consider why he asked that and whether it might be the thoughts of someone who had gotten away with committing this murder so many years ago, he now wanted to know what the police had to implicate him on this. He said there were no inconsistencies between his accounts of his movements that night and those of other witnesses. When asked by police about the DNA on Nicky's clothing, Mr Boyd said that he had been spitting off his balcony that night and it may have hit Nicky. When police said that the DNA were on her clothes under her coat, his response was that he suggested Nicky may have wiped her hands in his spit 
and then smeared it on her clothes. Now, later on in the trial, Richard Wright Casey told jurors Mr Boyd had a conviction for indecent assault from 1999. He said Mr Boyd had approached two girls aged 12 and 9 in Primrose Hill Park in Stockton about midday on the 8th of April 1999 and he groped the youngest between the legs before running away. He was identified in ID parade and convicted of indecent assault, telling a doctor he had been drunk, depressed and acted upon impulse when he insulted the girl. In a report prepared ahead of sentencing in March 2000, probation officer Gillian Dixon said that Mr Boyd told her he began to have dirty thoughts when he saw the girls and felt excited about touching them. She said he claimed to immediately feel disgusted and ashamed after grabbing the girl. Miss Dixon also said that Mr Boy admitted having a phase when he was aged about 22, where he began to fantasise both about adults and children, in particular young girls. The probation report said he would think about having sexual intercourse with young girls, but it was something he grew out of. Mr Wright said that Mr Boyd also had a conviction for breaching the peace from 1986 when he approached, approached sorry, four children in County Durham and grabbed a 10-year-old girl. The prosecutor said that Mr Boyd asked for her for a kiss before letting her go and ordering the children not to tell anyone what he had done. Judge Mrs Justice Christina Lambert warned jurors not to put too much weight on his previous convictions. The court heard there were no evidence there was no evidence, sorry, that Nikki was sexually assaulted before or after she was killed in the old exchange building. The jury of this trial consisted of ten women and two men, and they reached their verdict after two and a half hours of deliberation. Now they obviously the verdict they came to was guilty. In 2023, this year, Nikki would have been 37 years old and who knows what her life could have been. An interesting thing about the sentencing, to decide on how many years David Boyd was to receive, Justice Lambert had to take into consideration what it would have been in 1992 and 2023 and come to a conclusion. Now, you can see this actually on YouTube. You can watch the trial and all her final remarks. And she does explain, obviously, it's in like law language, why she has to do these due to certain types of rules. It is very interesting. I'm not going to try and just explain it to you because I will talk utter rubbish because I'm not good at explaining things. And also, you know, when you've read something so much and it still doesn't go in your head. So I'm not going to do that. But before I finish, there was I did watch her sentencing remarks on YouTube and one of the remarks the last line was pretty, you know, made a statement. But I'll read out a paragraph that she did, that she spoke. Now, this is halfway down her remarks. So, she says, I must also consider such invest mitigation as may exist. There is none. Your counsel urges me to take into account your IQ, which falls within the extremely low range, placing you in the bottom 2% of the general population. 
I accept the contents of the report prepared on your behalf by Dr. Harry Wood, a psychologist who describes your mild learning difficulties and a degree of intellectual impairment. However, I am unable to accept that the contents of that report is relevant to the minimum term which I must impose. Any intellectual difficulties which you face do not affect your culpability for this offence. You demonstrated quite sufficient guilt to lure Nikki away from the Garths and you were quick to attempt to cover your tracks by inventing a false alibi which you gave to the police. Nor do I accept that your age, then or now, is a factor mitigating in your favour. You were an adult of 25 when you committed the offence of murder. You were not a child or adolescent who knew no better. You are now aged 55 years. The fact that, as a result of the minimum term which I may impose, you may die in prison is not, it seems to me, a factor which I should take into into account. So, on the 23rd of May 2023, David Boyd received life imprisonment with a minimum of 29 years for the murder of seven-year-old Nikki Allen on the 7th of October 1992. 31 years after her death. That's crazy, eh? It's mad to mm-hmm. think what would have happened if the first one was convicted. Yeah, it's, you know, he could have still been in jail and the the search would have been off as well. So David yeah. would have completely got away with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, like, it's one of those ones as well. He has lived his life. He yeah. was 55 when he got caught. How we get yeah, with his life? I don't understand how. Oh, it's I'd be sickening. I would just have so much guilt, and I'd end up tripping up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but he's finally behind bars, and you know, it's not like it—it it doesn't change anything. Obviously, Nikki was still killed, and it ripped her family apart. But I guess mm-hmm. it could possibly give that tiny bit of closure to Sharon and her family. 